stand with me in honor of reading of God's word. Mark 14. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and this opportunity. We thank you for the the time of singing in which we were able to sing about how you and your son are all to us. And that we desire nothing more than to, to worship you. To remember that this book and our lives are all about Jesus. Uh, God, I pray that that would not be a, a platitude that we, that we say on Sundays, but it would be a reality that we live um, every day of the week. Lord, this morning I would ask for your help in delivering your word. I pray that you would keep me from error and that you would also illuminate all of our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what you have for us this morning. God, we love you. And we ask you to continue to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, get this kids, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, William Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was, quote, throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, William came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose in consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. That entry said simply, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. 
It was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and shortly thereafter a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill would read to us from the Bible, show us something God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with great assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement and soon spread across campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time he was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden's missionary call began to narrow to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said to him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I have ever known. And he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. And I always felt he was, a, he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not waste his time in pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the honor society Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down several high-paying job offers. In his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he got in a boat and sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt so he could study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written, no regrets. An amazing story of a man who many would say um, was taken at the the most opportune time for him to serve the Lord. Um, What a waste, some would say, that he died when he did. And often that is how we think about things. We have a temporal um, understanding of what is going on, and too often we see things in the short term, and we declare things wastes uh, that are not wastes at all. Um, So many young men and women down through the centuries have served Jesus and died at a very young age, and they have served oftentimes to spark revivals and to get other young people excited about missions work. So if nothing else were to happen this morning, then that several of you would get excited about going overseas and dying for other people, that would be enough for me. But we're jumping into Mark 14, and this begins the final section of the book of Mark. Uh, We are in the last three chapters, and at this point, um, we are in the last several days of Jesus' life. And so almost the entire last three chapters are devoted to the passion of Jesus. And we hear that phrase thrown around a lot, and I went and looked it up, and the word passion in in English we use for enthusiasm or for something that's just kind of infectious, something that someone is very excited about. But the Latin root that we get the English word passion from actually means to suffer. 
which is why we apply passion to Jesus' last week. And so as we get into this last week, of course, it's, it's focused on Jesus and his suffering. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Mark. The plan is to end the book of Mark um, with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. It seems fitting. Um, and so we look forward to in these last few months as we, as we just get into these last few days of Jesus' life. We're going to begin just to, to plow through these last few days and see all that God has for us in it. In your notes, you will see that we're going to start off with a little bit different, um, a little bit different things, some text issues, some introductory things that I had to wrestle with all week. Um, some things that if you are a student of the word and you go and read the other accounts in the gospels, you will find yourself with questions. I don't think I'm going to resolve all of those, but I'd like to touch on them. I think it's a responsible thing for me to do to, to let you know what's going on um, here in the text. And so if you'll grab your Bibles, you will be helped to follow along in them. In verse 1, we get a chronological note that says it was now two days before the Passover. And, and a quick note, um, the Jewish people even to this day don't count time the way we do. They don't start a new day at midnight. That is not, that does not bring in the new day. The new day starts at sundown. And so Wednesday turns into Thursday when the sun goes down Wednesday night. And so that, that just throws into confusion our understanding of days and nights in the scriptures. But we need to understand that as we begin to see the days delineated for us in the text. So this event in the last week of Jesus' life most likely happens on our way of understanding things on Wednesday night. Okay, most likely this is Wednesday night. There's debate about that, but I think the majority of the evidence points to Wednesday, and it's called Silent Wednesday. Because the days leading up to this, you remember Sunday was the triumphal entry, and the crowds are shouting, and Hosanna, and palm branches being waved. On Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and starts overturning tables and creating a cacophony of noise in the temple, and he derides the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. On Tuesday, he spent the whole day teaching, which is what we've been going through the last several weeks in the text. He, he responds to questions from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. You'll remember we talked about those things, talking about the resurrection, talking about um, whether or not to pay taxes. So this, this event that we're about to study is going to be Wednesday night. And so that's the first text issue there, and that's, that has to do with chronology. Okay, that's where that C is there, chronology. That's going to help orient us for the rest of the time that we're, we're in the book of Mark because chronology is very important. However, chronology is also a little bit confusing. And so the next word you see there starts with an H and that's harmony. That's harmony. And there is another recording of an anointing. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you could go to Luke 7 and see a very similar sounding story. And many scholars have said, well, these are all just one story and the gospel writers just kind of threw them around and placed them wherever. Um, I, I believe that the story you'll see in Luke 7 is a completely different incident. It happens in Galilee, not Jerusalem. Um, it is a sinful woman, um, as opposed to we don't understand uh, that adjective being expressed in this story. Um, and so that is a completely separate incident. So you go to the book of Luke, and you don't see this story in the Passion narrative, but you do see a similar one earlier on. Um, second, if you go to the book of Matthew, you have basically an idea an identical account. Basically the same wording, the, the same things going on. But if you would turn to the book of John with me real quick, just two, page, two books ahead, John chapter 12, 
Um, here's where we run into issues, <laughs> okay? And, and this, uh, there was all kinds of disputing in the commentaries and in, in the understanding here. But if you go to John 12, the first three words pose a problem. Six days before. <laughs> and we just read in Mark 14, there were two days before the Passover. Okay? And so there is some kind of issue here. Um, and because we believe that God inspired this holy word, we believe that we have the means to to make good suggestions as to how to understand these things. You'll also see in John chapter 12 that a, the woman is named. The woman is named and it's Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus. We don't, we don't get a name in Mark chapter 14. We also see that, that she anoints Jesus' feet and not his head, specifically in this story in John. And we also see that the person who's complaining about the waste of money is no other than Judas. In the book of John. In the book of Mark, we're not given that detail. We're just given that there were some. And so I want to be faithful to Mark's intentions. Mark did not write, um, did not write to blend his stories. He wrote to emphasize certain things. John wrote to emphasize certain things. And so I wrote this down so that I would not mess this up. It is best to understand Mark as having placed this story in this place in this passage, in his book, to achieve a sandwich effect. And we've seen this before. Earlier in the book of Mark, we saw um, the, the Jairus' daughter. He's a synagogue official. His daughter had died, and he comes running to Jesus. Well, she's not dead yet. She is, she is sick, and he runs to Jesus, asking her to come and heal. And Jesus says yes. And on the way, we run into another story of a woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she desires healing. And Jesus heals this woman. And then continues on to go see Jairus' daughter who he ends up raising from the dead. And that is the most famous example. But there are other examples of this sandwich. So you get the top layer. Then you've got a middle story. And then the first story ends down here. But the main point is in the middle. And the middle illuminates the whole sandwich. The meat makes the sandwich? I don't know. So, something like that. The middle um, is what explains what Mark is doing. And so I think here... In the passage that we're going to study, you'll look, and most of your Bibles will have um, title headings, and verses 1 and 2 are going to be separated from 3 through 9, which will be separated from 10 through 11. But if you took 3 through 9 out, if you covered it up with your hand, going from verse 2 to verse 10 would flow rather easily. It would seem to make sense. So what I'm going to suggest is that Mark is, is placing, moving the story of the anointing to this part in the text to contrast two different types of people. And we'll get to that. But you'll notice in verse 3, and here's how I can make that assumption. In verse 1 it says, now it was two days before. But verse 3 says, and while he was at Bethany. And I think Mark is, is he's not tying it to any chronological movement here. He's saying, while Jesus was at Bethany. And we know this entire week that every night when Jesus came home from Jerusalem, he went back to Bethany where he was staying. And so John says six days before, and Mark seems to say two, but I think what Mark is doing is Mark is taking an event that happened the Friday before and telling it in the context of the betrayal to contrast the two different types of people that we're going to see. Okay, and this does not violate historical truthfulness. Um, You pick up a history book um, in the library, you go buy a history book, and it is the author's prerogative to place things at different places sometimes to make an emphasis. Okay? And so um, 
our, maybe our understanding of historical truthfulness saying you can't do that um, is probably a little misplaced. Um, the author is not just communicating information to us. He's not just giving us data. He is trying to say something. He's putting the story together to mean something. And so that hopefully maybe helps um, us harmonize these issues. Okay? Um, last, you'll have there in a the text issue, is identity. And I already mentioned some of this, but the eyes for identity. Um, we see in Mark 14 a guy named Simon the leper. In John 12, we don't see Simon the leper. <laughs> um, in Mark 14, we say an unnamed woman. In John 12, we see this woman is Mary. In Matthew, it says the disciples are rebuked by Jesus. In Mark, it says um, there were some. In John, it says it's Judas. Yeah, these are not contradictory. These are the different authors having a different emphasis. And so Matthew wants to point out that the 12 disciples are missing the point. Mark is going to be more general and say that everyone in the room is missing the point. And John is going to say that Judas is the instigator of missing the point. But because I'm preaching from Mark, we're not going to focus as much as on what is going on in the book of John. I would encourage you to read John 12 this week and compare. But I think that Mark doesn't name people for a specific purpose. And so we want to stay true to Mark's purpose and to the Holy Spirit's purpose in inspiring Mark. And that leads us to point one. That was all introduction. (laughs) Point number one, you'll see there in your notes, Jesus' days are numbered by God. Jesus' days are numbered by God. And I think this is implicit in the text. It's not explicit, but I think you're going to see this um, very quickly. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, If you've never read the book of Mark, I still think you probably know how the story ends. Jesus is going to die on a cross, and he's going to rise from the dead. So because we know the end of the story, I feel that we can go back and say this. Look at the chief priests and the scribes. They want to do this sneaky, okay? They're trying to do this by stealth. They are trying to find a way to do this um, that is going to go under the radar. Notice, they don't want to kill him during the feast, I'll tell you a little secret. They kill him during the feast. That's important. That that shows me that the chief priests and the scribes are not in control. Okay, They don't get what they want. God is in control. God is orchestrating this entire thing. Go to the book of Acts real quick. The disciples understood this right after Jesus left. When the Holy Spirit descended, they began to understand. In Acts chapter 2... Peter, in his very first sermon, is preaching to the men at Pentecost. He's just received the Holy Spirit. There are people speaking in tongues everywhere, and people think people are drunk. It's crazy. And in verse 22 of Acts 2, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it. You're murderers. But it wasn't outside of God's plan. So these these men are held responsible for a heinous murder. But God is orchestrating the entire thing. 
God is not in heaven during these last three chapters wringing his hands saying, Jesus, can you, can you hack this? Can you make sure this happens right? No, God is in control. Go to chapter four of Acts. It happens again. The believers um, are rejoicing because Peter and John are released from prison. And in verse 27 of chapter four, they say this in prayer to their God. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, he said, it's Jesus versus everybody else. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. None of this, none of this last week of Jesus' life is a surprise to God. None of it is out of his control. Jesus' days are numbered. He is going to the cross But these chief priests and scribes who think that because of their power in Israel are able to affect what they want to have happen have no clue that they're playing right into God's hands and God's plan to save the world. And so that first point, I think, Jesus' days are numbered. They're numbered by God is really important to remember. I think Mark does that at the very beginning of this last section on purpose to help us remember that God is in control. Which is helpful, because I want you to place yourself in the position of the disciples as we study this passage. Okay, oftentimes we like to identify with the hero, right? Like, we read David and Goliath, and we're like, I'm like David! Okay, we, we like to say, I'm like Daniel! Um, most of the time, we should actually find the weak people, the people who need the most help to identify with. So I, I would challenge you, identify with the twelve in these last three chapters, and feel what they must have felt. Look at it through their eyes. We know the end of the story. They were living it. They were living this out. And so as we do that, um, that helps us to, to remember the situations we're in currently. God knows the outcome. God knows the outcome. If you're jobless, he knows the outcome. If you don't know where you're going to go to school next semester, he knows the outcome. Um, any, any problems, any issues that we have, any, any trials that we're in, we must, we must remember that God is in control. And that as we look back, oftentimes we can see what God was doing. And in the midst, we, we can't. But it is a comfort to know that it's never outside of God's planning, God's timing. Well, in verse 1, we're introduced that it's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we've talked about that a little bit before. I'm not going to belabor the point because Ron's going to talk a lot about that next week. Um, but Passover was the greatest feast that the Israelite people had to observe. There were three feasts that the Israelites needed to observe and that every Jewish man was supposed to be in Jerusalem for the feast. And Passover was the biggest one because Passover represented the salvation of the Jewish people as they were, as they were led into the Exodus by the angel of the Lord passing over the homes that had the blood of the lamb posted on the doorposts. That, that angel passed over those homes. He did not pass over the homes that did not have the blood and the firstborn of those homes was executed. And so the Jews remember this as the way that God rescued them from slavery. And so they come 1,500 years later to celebrate this. And then, of course, um, Passover is a one-day thing that would lead into a week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which also commemorates that escape from Egypt because they didn't have time to let the dough rise. They had to throw together some food, unleavened bread, pop it in their mouths, and go. 
And so that is the remembrance that's going on in the Passover. And that will lead us next week into understanding how the Passover translates into communion, into the Lord's Supper. But enough on that. Um, just want to say a few more things about this first section. Um, I think the word arrest is a little too nice in verse 1. Um, when we think of arrest, most of the time, hopefully, <laughs> you think of some kind of due process, um, of your rights being read to you, uh, of needing to go into court and having a, a lawful way of doing things. Um, this word is actually can also be translated seize. So the chief priests and scribes are not necessarily looking for a legal way to do this. We'll see that in the coming chapters. They're going to get Jesus and then try to justify a legal thing for what they did. And so this is not trying to come up with a legal way to arrest Jesus. It is trying to think of a sneaky way to find a way to capture Jesus, to, to seize him, to grab him when he least expects it. And so that is what they are seeking to do. And this culminates what's gone on throughout the book of Mark. Way back in chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians were already trying to find a way to kill Jesus. So this is not a new development. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people have been wanting to kill him. They want to destroy him. But here we see kind of culminating in the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling elders and chief priests of Israel, coming together, scheming to get this done. And so they're looking for a way to do it. Now, they don't want to upset the people. You'll see that in verse 2, not during the feast. Why? Lest there be an uproar from the people. I think the NIV says riot. Um, th- that word is, it means noise, clamor, confusion. And they've already seen this in the triumphal entry, right? So Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives and people are dancing and praising and throwing their coats on the ground. And Hosanna, they're singing psalms. So they've already seen this noise, this clamor, this confusion the Jewish leaders have. And in fact, the Roman leaders have also seen it because every year the Roman governor went from his palace in Caesarea on the coast, left the beach town, and went to Jerusalem because he knew there was going to be lots of people there. There was going to be opportunity for rebellion and uprising. There already had been in the decades prior to this. And so Pilate was here. A bigger Roman army was here. The Jews were on edge. Um, it was a, a situation that could just needed a spark. Just needed a spark to set it off. And so that is what the chief priests and the scribes are scared of. Now that leads us into the meat of the passage, verses 3 through 9. And you'll see point number 2 there is wasteful worship. Wasteful worship. And you might have noticed that I titled the message prodigal worship. Um, we normally associate prodigal with that son or daughter who has rebelled, who's gone off the reservation, um, who needs to come back like the prodigal son that we talk about in Luke's gospel. But the word prodigal means extravagant. It means recklessly extravagant. It means wasteful to some extent. It could also mean lavish. And so that's where I want to camp out here and show what is going on because this is convicting to my heart because it helps me see how I evaluate waste and productivity. What's efficient and what's waste? And oftentimes that creeps into the church and how we look at missions and how we look at ministries. We want to see, are we wasting money here? Let's cut it off. Are we? And I want to back up from that business type perspective. And I want us to see Jesus's perspective and this woman's perspective on worship. So look at verse 3. This is in Bethany, just over the Mount of Olives, about a two-mile walk from Jerusalem. They're in the house of a guy named Simon the leper. Now it's pretty obvious that he's not still a leper. (laughs) 
or else that would not be a good place to have a dinner party. Okay, so what is probably being said here is we know from tradition that the leper colony in Jerusalem was east of Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives, away from all the people, right? So unclean, unclean, um, you're leprosy, you can't be with people, you can't be around people. Um, there's a hint maybe that Jesus has actually been the one that's healed this man. Um, that, I think that can be reasonably assumed. Jesus has gone all over the country of Israel healing all kinds of people. Nevertheless, this man is Simon the leper. We know nothing about him except he probably used to be a leper. And he has a house. And he's having a dinner party. And we find out in, in John, it's probably a dinner party commemorating Lazarus being alive and not dead. Jesus raised him from the dead um, recently in this timeline. And they're at, they're reclining at table. And so many of you know this, but um, the Jewish people did not sit down at a table like we do. They got it right and they laid down at a table, which is an excellent idea. The table is low to the ground and the people kind of lay down on one elbow with a pillow and their food is right there before them. I don't know what we're doing. We're sitting at a table like we're sitting at a desk. I, I think we might need to investigate this and maybe next time we have a potluck, we can try this. Anyway, they're laying around the table. They're comfortable. They're eating. They're feasting. That is the setting. And in walks a woman. She comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, and we find out that it is very costly. Um, Nard is also called spike nard. Um, It's from two plants that made a perfume, and they came from far away as Nepal and India. So this is an imported product, very, very expensive, um, very nice. It's quite possible that this was actually perhaps a family heirloom that was passed down from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter. It kept going. Um, That is very possible um, because that would have been something that slowly gave um, a good scent to the room whenever you pulled off the top. Um, Whatever it is, it's very expensive and possibly emotionally connected um, item. And this woman comes into the dinner party. And Mark, in his very characteristic style, just says, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And so um, we see she's breaking it. Okay, so it has a thin neck. I tried to find a good picture and I couldn't find one. But it's got more of a fat bottom to it and then a a thin neck to the bottle. And it's made of alabaster, which is a, a beautiful thing to hold this ointment. And she could have, some, some commentators say that she had to break it to get it out. Um, but other commentators say, um, how did you get stuff in? <laughs> so you probably could pour it out. And what is going on here is this woman is breaking it so that it's all going to come out. Um, she doesn't want this drip, 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 drip on Jesus. She wants it all to be thrown out, to be wasted on to Jesus. And so she breaks it and begins to pour it over his head. So imagine at dinner today, at lunch, you're eating lunch with friends and family and someone comes in and starts pouring stuff on somebody's head in the middle of lunch. Um, that is weird. Um, and I don't know about you, but, um, when someone brings like, when, you know, when someone's wearing too much perfume or too much cologne, right? And you're like, how are you <laughs> doing? Right? Um, in the book of John, we see that, that the fragrance fills the room. So it's not only just weird and awkward. It's kind of like, woo, wow, wait. Like when you open the potpourri for the first time, it's just like overwhelming. And so that's what's going on here. This is not a scripted event as much as we see it in the Bible written down. It's not scripted. She walks in, boom, breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. If I'm next to Jesus, I'm scooting out of the way. 
This is a very interesting situation. And we see also that it's very costly. And so we get to, I'm sorry, verse 3. Sorry, A is pure worship. (laughs) I got ahead of myself. Pure worship. When we get to verse 4 and 5, we'll see that misplaced scorn. So letter A is pure worship. Letter B is misplaced scorn. As she is pouring this out over his head, verse 4, there were some who said to themselves, and that doesn't necessarily mean inside their head or their heart. It just means maybe muttering to each other. Um, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Something I found incredibly helpful. Um, We're we're quick to see these people as hypocrites. Um, But they actually may have had very good motives here. Uh, The time of Passover was a time that you were expected to give, that the poor would receive help because all the men of Israel, at least, and lots of families had come to Jerusalem. And so a lot of times that's where you would give your tithes and offerings to the temple and you would also give to help the poor. And so it was a very normal time to help the poor at Passover. And so these people in the room are saying, you could have, you could have used the ointment for that. What are you doing? And I think if we're to understand this correctly, um, I think what we're to see is this worship that Mary, this unnamed woman in Mark, um, pours out on Jesus is to be prodigal, is to be reckless. It's wasteful. It's all in. It's not dipping your toe in the pool of worship. It's diving in. Um, it, is, it is putting everything into it. You'll notice that they said more than 300 denarii to be given to the poor. It could have been sold. could have used it for better. A lot of you have a little note at the bottom of your page there. Um, whatever the case is here with 300 denarii, it's roughly equivalent to a year's wage. So think about how much money you make in a year in a little bottle of ointment broken open and poured on some guy's head. Okay, so, so maybe let's just, let's just take a number. Let's take $50,000. Someone walks into the room and pours out, breaks something worth $50,000. Okay. This isn't your little perfume bottle, ladies. Um, this is a year's worth, at least, of money. We would have sat in that room and said, that is a waste. What a waste. It could have been given to missions. It could have been given to local ministry. It could have been given to the benevolent offering. What are you doing? And I want us to note that this actually shows us the character of God. Um, the, the word in Greek is, is only used here in a few other places, but there's a similar word in Greek um, that talks about um, being poured out lavishly. And so Ephesians 1.8, we see um, that the Apostle Paul, in talking about God's grace for his people, is described like this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us see when god saves us he doesn't like give us a little proportion of the holy spirit or of grace he pours it out on us he lavishes it on us and so we see that that's the way god acts and so this woman is actually picturing the way god acts god is a giving god he is an extravagant god um first john 3 talks about the lavish love that god has poured out 
on his people. Other places in scripture, Jesus pours out lavishly his blood. God pours out his spirit. God's love is poured into our hearts. Paul is pouring himself out. Paul instructs us in Romans 12, if all of Romans 1 through 11 is true, he doesn't say, he doesn't say give a little bit to God. He says offer your body, offer your body, your whole being to God. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And so this lavish waste, this prodigal worship from this woman is nothing like a waste. In fact, it is the most amazing thing that human beings can be caught up in in its worship of Almighty God. That is what is going on here. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus spoke to this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You can't hold things back and be God's disciple. You you can't give him a little bit. We saw what happened with Ananias and Sapphira when they did that. Um, Don't hold back. Give it all. And, And then... We see in verses 4 and 5, the way that people respond with this, that this is a waste, they actually begin to scorn this woman. Like, verbally, they begin to take it out on her. Ver- the end of verse 5, and they scolded her. That word in the Greek literally means to flare your nostrils. Okay, it's actually used of horses. Okay, when the horses flare their nostrils. And the point is, when you get mad... Your facial expression changes. Your nostrils flare. My wife tells me mine do this extravagantly. Okay? Your nostrils flare. You are angry. You're displeased. One commentator says you could actually translate this word growling. Okay? They were growling at her. That's what's going on. So this woman walks into the room, pours the stuff on Jesus, and the rest of the people in the room start criticizing her. So how does she, how's she feeling? How's, how's she doing? She's taking a great risk. She took, she just, she just put a year's wages of stuff all over Jesus. You're not gonna be able to get, gather it back up. You're not gonna go squeeze his hair out and get, get it back. It's gone. It's used. And so these guys in the, in the room, we, we, we see that they're the disciples in Matthew and in John, Judas seems to be leading the way. They scold her. And so this woman is sitting there having been scolded. And verses 6 through 9, we see, let her see, Jesus to the rescue. Jesus to the rescue. See, we, it, we don't have any red letters till now. <laughs> okay? Verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Wouldn't that be nice to have Jesus come to your defense? <laughs> leave her alone. Quit it. He tells his followers, he tells the people in the room, Leave her alone, which would have been a great rebuke because now, now you're, now you're on the other side of Jesus. You're like, wait, 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 hold on. I thought this was a waste. Was this not a waste? Wait, what did we say? Okay. Jesus does not like what we did. Okay. Um, Jesus calls what she has done. Look at verse six. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful, good, of great quality. So in, in contrast to what these people thought, she did a wasteful thing. Jesus says she did a beautiful thing. So what one, what one group sees as waste, Jesus sees as beautiful. We've got to be careful in the church what we call waste. There are all kinds of resources wasted in the church because we're dealing with people. We're dealing with people. 
And so we don't want to give someone one chance. I spent all those resources on you and you didn't return anything in favor. You don't come to church anymore. Forget you. I'm not wasting resources on you. I'm not wasting God's love on you. We got to be careful we don't fall into that trap. That is very easy to fall into. We need to see that attempts to, to, to break open, to pour out, no matter how misplaced we may think, we need to be careful and evaluate from Jesus' perspective. Is this a beautiful thing in the sight of God? In verse 7, Jesus continues to explain what the woman has done. He says, you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. That is not, okay, listen, that is not a statement saying, don't care about the poor, <laughs> okay? Throughout the Gospels, it is clear Jesus himself and Jesus wants us as his people to care for the poor. That is throughout the scriptures. But what Jesus does here is actually, in human terms, arrogant. He says, you know what? That could have been given to the poor, but it's a lot better that you put it on me. Okay, now if any one of us said that, that is arrogant. That would make me not like you very much. <laughs> okay, that is a ridiculous statement. And so the contrast here is not between Jesus and the poor. It's between the always and the not always, right? Jesus says, I'm not going to be around for very much longer. You don't have the opportunity to do this very much longer. You always have opportunities for the rest of your life to care for the poor. In fact, he's, he's kind of quoting Deuteronomy 15:11, which says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. But Jesus is saying something outrageous. And this brings to mind C.S. Lewis's statement of the liar, lunatic, or Lord. And I couldn't resist reading it to you. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus here says, I'm worth pouring out $50,000 worth on. I am. Because I'm not just another man. In verse 8, he points to the woman and says, she's done what she could. So, so it, almost, it almost sounds like this woman was trying to figure out a way to honor Jesus. She's trying to figure out some way to do it. And the only thing she can find is on her dresser, the alabaster flask. And so she did what she could. She did what she could. Literally, she did what she had. So she looked around and the only thing she had was this. And so she acted on it. And Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And this is another prediction, right? He's already told the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get spit on, beat. I'm going to get turned over, betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. He's told them that endlessly. And this woman, he says, perhaps unwittingly, most likely unwittingly, is actually preparing his body for burial. And verse 9 takes us into a, a very extraordinary verse and truly i say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her jesus says wherever the bible is translated preached taught read this woman will be remembered and see we're we're doing it right now 
We're remembering this woman. We're modeling the way we give on this woman today. And also implicit in this is Jesus says, and the gospel will be proclaimed. So that means he's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to rise and the gospel is going to go forth. He's, he's implying there's going to be a time where Jerusalem is not the only place where you can hear about Jesus. The whole world is going to be. We're like 8,000, 9,000 miles away from Jerusalem celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ here this morning. It's come true. This is, is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. The gospel will be preached. The gospel is being preached. And this woman's example is before us. Well, let's close with the last section, the shocking betrayal. And we've heard this story so often, we're used to this, okay? So, so listen, listen, repent like you've never heard this before. You've read the whole gospel. You've seen the 12 follow Jesus. They drop their nets. They follow him. They go wherever he goes. They sleep on the road. They don't have anything unless people provide it for them. They go out on a mission trip and they're casting out demons and they're healing people and they're preaching the gospel and they get to hang out with Jesus for three years. And verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12. That's a shocking statement. That's, it's not somebody random. It's not, a, it's not a scribe. It's not a Pharisee. It's not a Gentile. It's one of the 12. One of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. That should be shocking. And that should also be terrifying. That means proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Proximity to Jesus does not, does not make you faithful. Just because you're close, just because you're reading the Bible, just because you come to church on Sunday, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be faithful. Look at Judas. Three years with Jesus, and he's going to betray him for cash? He does not get it. He does not get it. Notice the, the initiative is on Judas. He went to the chief priests. See, back in verse 1, the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. Judas becomes their answer. They were seeking, and Judas went to them. In verse 11, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So he joins the wrong team. Chief priests and scribes were seeking, and now Judas is seeking to betray Jesus. But remember, this is not outside God's plan. This is not outside God's control. He knows what is going on. He understands what he is doing. And so we see this incredible contrast. We see a woman's faith causing her to sacrifice money, and we see Judas with money causing him to sacrifice his faith. The complete opposite. It's a complete contrast. This woman wastes it all on Jesus, and Judas wastes Jesus for money? How terrible is that? This is a disturbing passage. It is one that should haunt us. Um, it, it should not be just, yep, Judas betrays Jesus. It should scare us. It should terrify us. So what can we do in application? Give what you have. Do what you have. Do what you can. That's what this woman did. Do what you can. Do you see what he's done for you? We're going to see Jesus pour out, just like the, the ointment is poured out. We're going to see Jesus pour out his life on the cross for you. 
How do we respond to that? By giving them a few hours on Sunday every week? How are we going to waste our lives? No matter what the world thinks about our investment in the church, no matter what they think about our time investment in people, are we going to waste our lives for this? John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, (laughs) says this. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80, and served at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went off a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. John Piper says, I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even in two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. Their lives were not wasted. And then he says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise in their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. And I challenge us this morning, whether it's your vehicle, whether it's your home, whether it's your kids, whatever it is, whatever's getting in the way of you giving, of wasting, pour yourself out. We are so cautious. (laughs) We are such a cautious people. We're not ready to just go out there and waste our lives for Jesus. I, 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 I caution, I'm careful to say this, but I hope that my life is wasted for Jesus rather than saved for stupid things. So let's evaluate our lives. What are we willing to waste for Jesus? Are we willing to waste our lives in prodigal worship? Father, this, this morning we want to to do what that song said. We want to pour forth our love. And God, I specifically ask right now for those who, who are worshiping themselves, um, who don't know how to go about this, who, but who sense they need to make a change. Father, would you draw them to yourself? Show them the glorious nature of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sin. Raised from the dead, seated at your right hand, interceding for us. And so this morning, we pray with Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.